he would work a 12 hour shift, go home, come back the next day, work a 12 hour shift and do that for a week straight. Hmm. And so I said to him, so, you know, what do you do to recover at the end of that first 12 hour shift? And he looked at me and said, well, what do you mean recover? And I kind of looked back at him and said, what do you mean? What do I mean? What do you mean? Because how can you possibly be under such pressure and demand, not just emotionally and psychologically, but spiritually and physically doing this work for 12 hours, right? Go home, come back less than 12 hours later and expect that you're going to be anywhere close to your best to do it again and then Mm. rinse and repeat for a week. Mm. And so that's sort of the mindset that, that needs to be overcome. This is a Therapy for Dads podcast. I am your host. My name is Travis. I'm a therapist, a dad, a husband. Here at Therapy for Dads, we provide content around the integration of holistic mental health, well-researched evidence-based education, and parenthood. Welcome. Okay, welcome to the Therapy for Dads podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Darren Davidson, who is a orthopedic board-certified surgeon who is passionate about practices for the healthcare athlete, and he focuses on integrating the mind-based and body-based skills into the healthcare system so we can improve health and wellness, promote sustainable high performance, and decrease the risk of burnout. It is through the deliberate integration of these skills from both top-down and bottom-up perspective that we can be our best for ourselves and those around us in all aspects of life. Welcome to the Therapy for Dads podcast Darren, how are you doing this evening? I'm great, Travis. Thanks for having me. And, and how are you doing? Good, good. <laughs> really, really good. It's good to have you on. And um, uh, for those of the, you who are tuning in for the first episode, I actually had the pleasure of um, having uh, Darren's maybe better half, equal half, whatever yes, you want to say. on a better half. half. Definitely. Better half. I was able to have his wife. In glowing shell, terms. In, yes. Shelly on, um, although I accidentally called her Kelly, uh, but we kept it because it was a funny little laugh at the beginning of the show. Um, but <laughs> Shelly, who was on a few episodes back, which that is actually um, episode, boop, 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 let me get it. I think it's episode 38. And it was a great episode. Talk about parental burnout, um, which is kind of sort of what we're going to talk about tonight that Darren's going to share, but a little different. Um, and so I get to have them both on in different episodes and I might have to have him bring them both on for a, a kind of a couple episode. That I might kind of, yeah, we'll, might be a fun show. We'll do a joint um, one at some point. Yeah, that no, that'd be, be I, I would love to, that'd be great. <laughs> have you guys talk in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tonight, um, or this morning, whenever you're listening to the show, um, it's evening for us. We're on the West coast and, um, Again, those who don't know, I'm in Southern California and Darren is up in Seattle area. So just outside Seattle in Kirkland. That's what I love about the show. I get to have people from all over, literally all over. And we get to talk about the integration of mental health and men and fatherhood, kind of kind of that kind of meeting place where they all kind of come together. So um, Darren has got a, I'm actually excited for the conversation tonight. I'm excited for him to share a bit about his story and kind of what he's doing and the work he's doing um, to help athletes, surgeons, kind of the medical professionals and kind of what he's doing now. So uh, I guess, Darren, let's just jump right in, man. So what do you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds great, Travis. Thanks. Thanks again for having me on on your podcast. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. And, and um, I love the work that you're doing. It's very important and not always uh, the focus of bringing dads into the conversation. So I appreciate that. Um, well, maybe for just a bit of an overview of kind of what led to me 
doing the the work I'm doing and what I'm interested in, I could just start with with my story, uh, which is I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training, as you mentioned. Uh, but what really led to me becoming interested in these concepts of promoting health, well-being, and sustainable high performance was that about two or three years into my practice, I became burnt out, which happens, unfortunately, to a pretty large number of um, healthcare providers, regardless of what type they may be. Fortunately for me, the burnout I had was not anything that led to substance abuse issues, which it does for a lot of people. It didn't lead to any patient care problems, which it does for a lot of people, uh, but it was burnout nonetheless. Uh, the silver lining to it, I suppose you could say, is that it brought me back to interests that I had when I was in high school and in undergraduate training in what, are the, what at the time was called sports psychology. It's now kind of evolved and expanded into performance psychology. But the idea at the time was learning about some psychological skills to help people have their minds in the best place for whatever sports um, interests they had. And so I had done a couple of courses in that back in um, undergraduate uh, university. And of course, as I went into med school and residency, promptly lost track of all those skills at the time when they would have been of great use, but that's how it went. You know, what happened when I got burned out is it brought me back to a lot of those ideas and those references and, and concepts that I had learned about 25 years or so earlier. And of course, in getting up to speed on it, found that that field had expanded tremendously. And there was a lot more work on, on uh, mindset training, a lot more work on incorporation of meditation, of sleep, nutrition, hydration, exercise, recovery principles. And in learning about this, recognize that this really was an important field to bring into the healthcare system because going through whatever medical training we go through, it doesn't matter for physicians, surgeons, PAs, physical therapists, you name it, this is not a part of our education or our experience. It, mm. you know, it's all about looking after the patients. It's not about doing the things you need to do to recover, to be at your best or anything like that. And at least in part, that's led to the massive burnout problem. So I became interested in, in bringing these skills into, into that realm to help train healthcare professionals um, on the things they can do to promote their health, their well-being and sustainable high performance, not just being at your best for like a peak because a peak's got the downslide on the other right. side, but being right. up there and just being able to stay as long as possible because in healthcare, we're not looking to be our, at our best for an event like an athlete might be. It's for a decades worth career. So that's where the sustainable piece comes in. You know, it's really, I think, important work to help and help people and, and borrows off of a lot of concepts that we see in, in very high performance domains, such as um, amateur or professional high level sports, business world as well, integrates mm -hmm. a lot of these concepts. So I think they're important to bring in uh, to our daily routines, um, our being healthcare providers, but really all of us um, as humans, because these are the skills that allow us to be the best versions of ourselves, not just for ourselves, but for all the people around us. Hmm. And, and curious, what is like the general burnout percentage rate of medical healthcare workers? Well, so if we look at physicians, it's all mm. self-reported. So big bias right off the bat right there, mm. because you could almost rest assured that the number is higher than what gets reported because they're basically using surveys of one kind or another to ask people, do you feel burnt mm. out? Oh, gotcha. So that, of course, requires a certain self-awareness and recognition. But right. depending on the, the study and the population that, that's sampled, it is really at um, the low end is a 50 percent. And at the upper end, for some specialties, you're reaching into the 60, 70 percent range. Wow. So, so it, that's it's not really very, low. very high. <laughs> yeah, that's not really very low at high. all. And what from, 
again, I, I, it makes sense. It's kind of like, yeah, it's all, it's all self-report. And if they don't, if people don't even recognize the signs of burnout, my guess is uh, even thinking of like men's mental health, uh, you know, men struggling with mental illness, since men tend to underreport, we know within that, that the percentage is much higher. So, um, what typically is the burnout like time frame typically within that is it like a couple of years? Is it, is it three years like yourself? Is it like what it tends to be the average of that kind of burnout? Well, that, that's a really good question. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure of any good data to really give a sense of the time frame. Um, I think it can be quite variable for some people. Mm-hmm. It can, can come on pretty quickly for others. It could be more, more gradual. Uh, but I don't know that there's a really good sense of, of what the average is. Um, hmm. cause it would be somewhat difficult to kind of figure out where is the starting point. Or if you use the on the, you know, the beginning of practice as a starting point, that would be fine. And then see how far into practice we get. I mean, there are studies that show that older healthcare providers tend to have lower prevalences of burnout. Hmm. But again, with the self-reporting and them being from a completely different generation, you start to wonder what is the actual reason for that? Is it that there mm. is less burnout or is it that they hide or, you know, repress the suppress the, the, the symptoms or they recognize them, but they won't report them? I mean, it, mm. it's really hard to, to tease out. Yeah. It sounds like there still needs to be a bit more, uh, a bit more research in kind of what is that time frame. A bit more research into kind of the different generational um, differences, if there are any. Um, yes. Like you said, it sounds like there needs to be more than just some of these surveys, which could be, I'm guessing, hard to do because again, it takes people to admit and to understand and to say, "Hey, you know, I'm struggling here." Something else you mentioned earlier, which I think two things. One, um, you mentioned in your training. Um, mm-hmm really wasn't a lot of talk around kind of like taking care of you. Right. Um, and I'm wondering within that, I would assume just because if you don't even talk about taking care of you, even talking about your mental wellness was even a conversation in oh, your no. training as a, not yeah. at all. So that's interesting. I find that's not even a conversation piece of how do you take care of you as a medical, like a healthcare worker, a surgeon, when you're taking care of people, which tends to be the focus, which makes sense. But mm-hmm what happens to you in the end is like, there's no, there's no, it sounds like there's no grid for which makes sense why you might burn out. I mean, I mean, thinking of this is if you don't even understand to take care of yourself, if you're just told to take care of the patient, 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 in a way it's like creating a, a, a culture of burnout. Like just in that, mm-hmm. like if that's the whole focus, well then you're, you're going to eventually start to de- like kind of decay and, you know, break down if you're not aware of what you need to do for you. Yeah. Oh, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the focus through training is very much on how to look after the patients, which of course is important because that's kind of why, why we're all there. The right. thing is, is that it's kind of like that, that story from, from the airplane with the oxygen masks, right? You've got to put on your mask before you can help anybody else's. And, and the application to that idea in this setting is, is that if we're not at our best, how mm. can we possibly be making the best decisions for patients? How can we possibly be providing them the care that they need? And if we're in a technical area such as surgery, how can you be performing those technical skills at your absolute best if mm. you're not looking after yourself, your mindset, your body, your nutrition, your hydration, your recovery? Um, you know, just as an example, several years ago, I was talking with an anesthesiologist who I'd worked with very very often. And he was a really good clinician, as many anesthesiologists do. He also worked in the ICU, in the intensive care unit. So looking after the sickest patients in the hospital, typically. And we were talking about a lot of these 
these things. And, you know, in his clinical practice, he was a very tip of the arrow kind of guy, like up to date on the absolute latest research and, and all that. And we were talking about recovery. So like after you are exposed to something that's high demand, how do you recover your mind and your body to be able to come back and then perform at a high level the next time? And I was using as an example and talking with him, one of his um, schedules in the ICU. So for that, he would work a 12 hour shift, go home, come back the next day, work a 12 hour shift and do that for a week straight. Hmm. And so I said to him, so, you know, what do you do to recover at the end of that first 12 hour shift? And he looked at me and said, well, what do you mean recover? And I kind of looked back at him and said, what do you mean? What do I mean? What do you mean? Because how can you possibly be under such pressure and demand, not just emotionally and psychologically, but spiritually and physically doing this work for 12 hours, right? Go home, come back less than 12 hours later and expect that you're going to be anywhere close to your best to do it again and then Mm. rinse and repeat for a week. Mm. And so that's sort of the mindset that, that needs to be overcome. Yeah. Um, it's, is, it sounds like almost like deer in the headlights. Like, wait, it's like almost a question out of left field. Like, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Well, like, well exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, in, and in doing a lot of this work, I, I've come to learn that the words that we use matter a lot mm. because we're trained, we as healthcare providers, to not look after ourselves. So if we talk about something like self-care or we talk about something like meditation or you just got to be careful with the words because some of those terms instantly close people off to even mm. hearing anything else. Um, whereas if you, instead of say self-care, say recovery, it's like, oh, what's that? <laughs> you know? Interesting. Why do you think that is like the the term versus recovery? Like, what do you think is the difference that you're seeing? Well, my own, my own opinion on that is that not necessarily intentionally or overtly, but very subliminally throughout medical training, we are really taught to look after the patients and not at all to consider yourself. And so as you go through residency, the concept of doing, you know, leaving early because you're exhausted when there's patients to be looked after is not really widely supported. Now, that is changing mm-hmm. to a degree, uh, but it's it's not a um, main part of the conversation. And so people, I think, are trained in a sense to always be looking for what they can do to help the patients and never what they can do to help themselves. Hmm. You know, hearing that, it, it just it's a it's a matter of time. Then, meaning a matter of time before the burn. It's like inevitable. Like burnout's inevitable, whether you or something's inevitable, like addiction or something to cope. Yeah. Well, something will happen. I mean, I, you know, for, yeah. and again, not everybody gets burnt out. Not everybody has any substance abuse issues or right. anything like that. So there are people that manage it one way yeah. or another. Uh, but this is why the the prevalence is as it's high so as high. it is and yeah. why people are leaving the profession at the rates that they are looking to do yeah. different things. Um, so yeah. you kind of seeing this has been a problem, I think, for a very long time. But mm. the whole COVID pandemic kind of blew the lid off the pressure cooker in a sense and mm. just made it that much more apparent how significant of a problem it is. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you could do a quick little personal share of um, to give a little context to how you experienced burnout uh, for those, you know, guys and gals listening of, oh, okay, maybe I could relate to that feeling or experience. I'm wondering kind of what was the, what were some of your signs that you came to recognize that, oh, that was, that's what I'm burnt out. And that's, that's what this was. Um, and then uh, the second is, what did you do to get help? Like, what was that, that shift for you? Mm-hmm. Well, so the first and most important thing to recognize is, is that recognition is all in hindsight. So at the time, I didn't recognize that. But a lot of it was becoming exhausted, overly tired, 
um, not having the same degree of fulfillment in the work that I was doing that I that I did previously, um, becoming more easily frustrated or aggravated, um, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately what made the difference is just leaving that clinical practice and, and switching into to what I'm currently doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, along the path to that, I had started a meditation practice, which was of help. I became more interested in sleep and recovery, which helped as well. But I think for me, the main thing was was just switching into a different a different realm, basically, whereby you're still using the training because you're still helping people, but it's in a different way. Um, mm. And and that's not necessarily the case for everyone. I don't think every person that gets burnt out needs to change careers in one way or another by any means. Um, mm. I think for people who get burnt out, the specific solutions are specific to them. And mm. and everybody uh, ha- is going to have their own journey that that's going to be right for them, essentially. And, and trying to find that is, is what's key. Yeah. And I'm wondering for you, what was that like to like to decide I need to do something different? Was it like your epiphany of like, yeah, I got to do something different? Or was it like, hey, your wife mentioned something and she helped bring awareness? Was it, you know, like, was there something else that said, yeah, I, I need to switch because what I'm where I'm headed is not good or was there like something internally that just like a light switch went off? Like, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not sure it was as, as immediate as a light switch, but, but definitely um, a lot of support and understanding from, from Shelly, from my wife, as you mentioned before. Um, I don't think any of that um, kind of self-awareness or the hmm. interest and drive to do something about it in a significant way and then to, to turn it into trying to help other people would have been possible without, without her support and her interest in this general area as well. Um, you know, that that's was hugely important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it would be also just this kind of recognition of here I was at the time when I stopped the traditional practice, I was seven years or so into my practice and kind of going, you know, while there's absolutely a lot of aspects to that practice that I really enjoyed looking after patients and the surgical side, there was so many of the parts that you cannot remove from it, the administrative tasks, for instance, that just it was just impossible to find a way to not dread it and to not, mm-hmm. you know, not um, feel as if this was just co- continuously sort of weighing you down. And, and there's no way to get away from it, because if you want to do the patient care side, you have to do the administrative you know, paperwork. It's not paperwork, obviously, anymore. It's all electronic, but the paperwork mm-hmm. side of it. Um, and, and there's no escape from that. That's part and parcel of the of the job, really. Mm. Um, and and so you can't just pick the parts you like and leave out the parts that you don't you'd rather not do. That's yeah. not part of the deal. So it's a package deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned that you started a kind of a mindfulness meditation practice. Was that kind of in the midst of before you decided to switch and that? Or was that post kind of after you switched and realized, oh, I was burnt out? Or was it kind of somewhere in between? It was in between, but closer to the part where I realized that that there was something not right. I, I at the time wouldn't have been able to put my finger on it and say mm-hmm. what it was, but was starting to recognize, yeah, there's something, there's something not not right. And then you switched, and then you know you said that kind of hindsight, you looked back. So mm-hmm. at what point did you realize, oh, I was, that's what that was, like that was burnout. Like at what, how mm. far down away from removing from that uh, original kind of practice out, outside of the new practice was like, okay, and maybe 
farther down the road of meditation and mindfulness awareness and recovery and sleep that you realize that when you kind of put language and able to identify that's what, what that was. You know, to be honest, I think it was probably a couple of years later even. And, and hmm. after I'd stopped the traditional practice and kind of switched into what, what I'm doing now and looking back on it and recognizing, Hey, you know what, that is actually what it, you know, if you were to put a term on it, that's what, what the term would be. Um, I, I don't think it was at all during that whole process of, of kind of transitioning out of that hmm. practice hmm. or that role. Uh, it was after the fact for sure. Hmm. Um, and, and, um, you know, looking back to you in that season of your training, mm-hmm. um, you know, if Darren had his way, if he had like, you know, a magic wand that he could wave, what do you think he would see systemically would need to change for, the training of the healthcare worker, you know, surgeons, you know, surgeons that mm-hmm. would need to be implemented to kind of help really help prevent 50, 60, 70% yeah. burnout. Well, and, and I think it's important to say what, what I would change or would not even going back in time, but moving forward, love to mm-hmm. see implemented isn't just about reducing burnout. It's about truly promoting health, well-being and, and sustainable mm-hmm. high performance for people because not everybody gets burnt out. And I think when we, over-index and focus too much on quote-unquote burnout, we lose track of the people who aren't burnt out or the people who may be starting to become burnt out but don't recognize it yet. And I'd never want this to become an issue where we say, oh, there's things we can do to help, but we have to wait till you're burnt out. Like that doesn't make mm-hmm. any any kind of sense mm-hmm. to me. Yet when people talk about burnout, 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 it's almost as if we are only worried, only focused, only trying to help people who have become burnt out. And that just mm. doesn't really make sense to me. But the the implementation I'd love to see, and this would be as early as possible in training so that people have these skills early on, is to really provide knowledge, education, but also training and truly support the training so that there's time to properly do it so that people can start to develop an understanding, for instance, of how their nervous system works, because this all comes down to our nervous system, right? It's how we experience everything, you know, be it internal or external events, how we make sense of them, how we interpret them, how we respond to them, what we do with that is all our nervous system. And that gets into something called polyvagal theory that we can put a pin in and come back to another time. Uh, But there's a lot around that that just helps provide the setting, the context for us to be able to be at our best. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important for people to start to develop an awareness practice. So that's essentially meditation and and mindfulness in particular, because it develops that skill of being Mm -hmm. aware of what is happening in the present moment, both within myself as well as around me. So it's like situational Mm -hmm. awareness training in a sense Mm -hmm. and doing that without judgment or criticism. Mm -hmm. And that becomes so important because if I'm to try to adjust what I'm doing, I can't begin to do that unless I know where I'm starting. Hmm. And so that becomes so, so critical. Uh, And then developing mindset skills to help support all of this. And then the body-based skills like breathwork training, exercise, nutrition, hydration, recovery principles, all of this is like a package and it has to come together in order to allow us to be at our best. And Hmm. the analogy I like to use, especially in orthopedics, because it's, you know, a very sports based kind of um, specialty is if we look back over the history of, of, say, professional sports, and I might get the sequence a bit wrong, but the concept is there. Way back when, decades ago, the athletes would only train sports specific skills. 
And that's just what the standard was. But then it evolved and they would start to develop strength and conditioning so that their bodies were fit and strong and, and they had better stamina. And then they added on nutrition and then they added on the sports psychology we mentioned earlier. And then it extended out into and again, the sequence might be a bit off, but the concept is the same as they start layering on. So the sports psychology, mm. the meditation, sleep, recovery, and all of these things. And these are alpha competitors. These are the people that are looking for the 0.1% of 0.1% edge that they can get. So anybody that mm. says, oh, this is soft stuff. Yeah, go talk to you know somebody trying to win the Olympic gold medal in whatever event mm. or try to win the championship in whatever professional sport. They're not soft by any means. Mm. And yet they're trying to get all of these little advantages by training all of these skills. Mm. And so I think we need to do that in healthcare because it is a performance field. It's a different type of performance, but whether it's a radiologist looking at x-rays or MRIs or CAT scans, they're performing. They're seeing pictures and interpreting them. And those interpretations matter. If it's a mental mm. health specialist, they're interacting with their client or patient and taking in information and helping guide their client or patient, you know, soon you can go down the list, you know, more technical skill things require a mind body connection in order to perform the skill as best as mm. possible. And all of this we're looking to do over decades. So it has to be sustainable. So I think as early as possible in the training, we start to really teach people about these skills and let help them support them to integrate those into their daily routines. So it's a mm. part of their life. And this won't yeah. just make them better healthcare providers. It'll make them better humans. So they'll mm -hmm. show up better at home with their families, when they're yeah. with their friends, pursuing hobbies, you name it. Agree with you wholeheartedly and completely. Like, absolutely. We need to teach people these skills um, early on as part of, in, in my, not my opinion, not that you asked if I'm going to give it. Um, I think we need to teach this stuff well before even med school. <laughs> like, oh, ideally, yeah. We need yeah. to teach this kind of holistic health to like, our, which I do to my kids is like, needs to start like in elementary school. Like that should be part of mm -hmm. what we're training, like how to, Absolutely. how to deal with this stuff. Because it's almost like then we're, we're integrating holistic health at an early age where that's now the norm versus mm -hmm. like, you know, in my profession, it's like still we have a lot of stigma and mental health. You know, it's for crazy people. It's and then I'm even thinking more specifically with men and I'm thinking maybe high performance men in orthopedic surgery. You know, I'm wondering, do they value mental health? Right. Versus, oh, I value doing surgery. I value doing this, maybe a physical fitness. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to that a bit of maybe uh, some of the men you came across um, you know, slash fathers, right. Who are orthopedic surgeons who maybe valued kind of performance, but like negated that mental health component. And how would you address them in, I don't want to say pitching, but kind of pitching the, the benefit and the need for holistic kind of mental health. Right. And, and that's it. I mean, that's the crux of it, right? Because especially in amongst healthcare providers there, there's this stigma, as you mentioned that, Oh, I don't need this. And, mm -hmm. and so that is really at the heart of, of what needs to be done. And, and I think that the place where it starts is listening to the people who mm -hmm. you're interacting with and what their experience has been, because then you can start to get some insights about kind of how they perceive the situation, you know, what they've tried in the past, what's worked, what hasn't worked. But I think ultimately a common ground is something like exercise, as you mentioned, is, is currently widely accepted. We do this just for our health, right? But mm -hmm. if we went back to the 70s, for instance, that people didn't exercise just for the sake of being healthy. That wasn't a thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, Sam Harris, who who is a mm -hmm. big 
well, yeah. many hats that he wears, but uh, meditation is one of them. He talks about this. It just is back in time, 70s, 80s, whatever it might have been, where exercise wasn't done just for health. People say, oh, you should do it. It keeps you healthy. Well, over time, guess what? We do this for health. And the same thing needs to happen for our mental health. Hmm. In that training our minds has to become as routine a thing as just getting exercise, perhaps even more routine than physical exercise because without a trained mind really we're leaving everything in our lives up to chance yeah. um, because everything comes through our nervous system our mind i mean the terminology different people might use you know somewhat different words but ultimately how our brain and our nervous system and our mind all interact to take in information and process it determines everything in our life hmm. and if we're not training that then we're basically saying Whatever happens in my life, throw up the deck of cards. It'll happen by chance and what happens happens because we're not doing anything to help ourselves be the best version of ourselves by looking after the things that we can. Hmm. And, and so I think that conversation kind of resonates with people at times because, for instance, to take a surgeon's example, like you said um, in your question, we'd, I'd never say to somebody, well, you're going to train a resident how to do a a certain surgery, whatever it may be, the details don't matter. You would never say to them, well, just go do it and let me know how it turned out, right? You'd <laughs> train the skills. You would help right. them develop the skills, the component skills, the component parts that go into doing the whole. That's how mm. you. That's how they train them, right? That's how we're all trained in an, in an apprenticeship fashion. Well, mm. why would that be any different for what mm. we do for ourselves so that we can show up in any of our many roles in life to be able to be at our best in each and every one of those roles. In order to mm. do that, we have to train it all. There's no way mm. you can otherwise be at your best if you don't train the skills that are needed mm. for those roles. Yeah. I like that you said that training the skills. And I'm wondering in your experience when you've worked with or spoken, you know, because now that you kind of speak and you, you talk about this, um, when you're working with men, I, I think that that terminology of like skills training, at least in my professional experience seems to be a better fit or I, I could, it kind of resonates with men mm -hmm. easier and like kind of like, Oh, that makes sense. It's skill. I'm, I'm training skills. Cause it kind of yep. goes to like, kind of like that sports or that athletic or weight gym thing, you know, where you say it's skills training. It kind of, it gets past the defenses of mental health, like exactly. the, the stigmas. Yep. And I'm wondering if you've seen that in your, in your kind of uh, experience. Oh, absolutely. This gets back to what we were talking about before, about finding the right language, the right terms, mm. so that when we're talking with people about this, they don't just close the door and say, no, I'm not interested. That's for somebody else. It's too woo, you know, whatever the response might yeah. be. It's yeah. about finding those words that, that keep them a little bit open and intrigued and mm. wanting to find out a little bit more. Because I think once you start to develop one or two of these skills and see the difference that it makes, then all of a sudden mm. everything else becomes much more on the table. Hmm. Language does matter. Um, and speaking to the particular individual and, and, you know, the show, we focus a lot on dads and men and is really mm -hmm. trying to get, speak the language of men and fathers. Not that, you know, everyone's really unique. And I think something you said is vitally important. It starts by first listening to the individual to kind of see their story, you know, first listening to what you're hearing 
and then maybe adapting the language to fit kind of not by lying, but really adapting the language in a way to mm-hmm. kind of say the same thing, but meeting kind of their particular state and context and readiness for maybe looking at this kind of idea of mental wellness, mental health wellness to kind of add into to prevent burnout, but really to beyond that, you know, to live a yeah. more holistic life. Um, and I think it's so key is that starting with listening. And, and I love that you said that because it it very res- resonates what I do in my profession is well, we start with listening first and really trying to understand the, you know, the individual story and their unique context and kind of mm-hmm. their particular dynamics that, um, in the world they live in and the things that they face and their, whether it's cultural dynamics, you know, gender dynamics, racial dynamics, you know, you know, there's so many things at play and I have to learn to kind of adapt to their particular place in time in order to help them navigate that world to get right. better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think, like you said, because everybody is an individual, the particular skills that we might emphasize with one person might be different from another person. The order in which we layer them on might be a little bit different because different people might have different strengths. They might have different areas for growth. Um, They might have different needs as far as what is most important right now um, to Mm -hmm. to help them understand things and also to help them start to grow and, and, and become the best version of themselves. And, you know, while we've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about the healthcare realm here, it applies equally to being a father. It applies equally to being a partner. It applies equally to being Mm -hmm. a friend, to being a son, you know, any role. Right. And, and like you said about teaching this as early as possible in elementary school, absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I mean, if, Mm -hmm. if we had a larger number of people in the population that were embodying this type of approach and doing these types of of skill building activities when they were younger, the world would be a different place. And then they would teach it to their kids. And then, you know, it's like you drop the pond, the pebble in the pond and the ripple out yeah. effect. Fantastic, yeah. Right? yeah, I agree. I'm not on the school boards making decisions for education, <laughs> but <laughs> I know there are advocates out there trying to make change um, big time. But, you know, I know that what you're doing with your family and what I do with my kids is I'm really trying to at least equip them on my individual level so at least they're having something when they go into yeah. the school settings and do all those things. And, and, you know, before we jump into kind of the, the second set of this, of like kind of what you're doing now and kind of the shift that it's had for you, I'm wondering, is there any particularly unique barriers that you've seen working with kind of the population kind of surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, and specifically kind of men, anything uniquely that you're seeing, you know, anything, maybe you've mentioned it, but maybe to reiterate, Hey, yeah, this is kind of unique that I'm seeing in my experience working with men and orthopedic surgeons. I think one of the biggest barriers is, is just this stigma of if I have to train my mind, it must mean I have a weak mind or I just need to be mentally tough and plow through it. And you know, the, these sorts of kind of bravado type yeah. of concepts that, that I think we've all been mm-hmm. exposed to at one point or another and yeah. trying to, teach people and get them to understand that training your mind is not a sign that your mind is weak. Just the same as Mm -hmm. you can go to the gym and see people who are clearly physically fit, they're training. Well, are they physically weak? Is the person who's bench pressing, you know, 300 pounds weak? No. Well, why are they training themselves then? Hmm. It's not because they're weak. It's because this is what they're doing for their health. And and changing that paradigm, that perspective Mm away from, oh, we're training something that's weak is what's necessary. And we can use physical fitness as a really good example because yeah. just widely accepted now that, that 
you do that because it promotes your health. Well, it is absolutely mm. the same thought pattern, mm. the same paradigm when you talk about training your mind or training any of these body-based skills to support your mind or your mind to support your body because it's a two-way street. Both are important. And, and, and that's really the, the recognition because I think once people understand that, everything kind of opens up and it starts to become, mm. a, okay, well, let's learn about all of this and let's try to implement a little bit here and there. And once you see a little bit of improvement, then you go, okay, let's add on a little bit more and a little bit more. I often use a gym analogy when I'm working, especially with men um, and and women too, but predominantly with men, I kind of use that analogy of of that kind of, hey, the first time you bench press, it's going to be hard and kind of weird and awkward and it's going to feel different and you're not going to get it right. It's going to feel a little wobbly and you're going to have to really be aware of and even I, I say this too, when they practice kind of mindfulness for the first time in practice, like it's going to be kind of weird. You're going to be very aware and, you know, you're going to kind of be wobbly and weak. And But over time with practice, it becomes more familiar. And, and right. something you said too is also key. I want to kind of reiterate, which is very important, is shifting the, the meaning of training from like, oh, it's weakness to no, this is just, this is about, this is about growth and health and it's it's a positive strength to train, you know, and, and using, you know, often using like athletes, it's like, well, they're training not because they're weak. They're training because they want to maintain yep. their ability. They they train over and over and over and over and over <clears throat> and over again, not because of weakness, but it's interesting. We still have this idea, and I, I think more particularly with men, is that it is a sign of weakness because it goes against some of those, those bravado kind of right traditional masculine traits that have been skewed, right? Because yeah. those masculine traits are good. What happens is they kind of get skewed a bit and then they get stuck in kind of a very singular dimensional view of like, well, if I have to train them weak and therefore I'm not strong yeah. and that's not good and I can't be seen as weak, especially if I'm probably a high-performing orthopedic surgeon. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Totally agree. The other thought that was coming to mind is there's this story, and of course, I mean, I have no firsthand knowledge of it, but it you know tracks with everything else. I'm a big Michael Jordan fan, and, and apparently oh, yeah. he would, at the beginning of practice, I mean, here's arguably the greatest, I don't think arguably, definitely, but some might mm-hmm. argue, the greatest basketball <laughs> player to ever live. And yeah. apparently, at the beginning of practice, he would just start with like a whole bunch of just chess passes, like the most basic skill. Mm. You know, he was at the peak of his career doing the most basic skills in practice. What, because mm-hmm. he was bad at it? Of course not. Yeah. But that's the whole point, right? Is that if we're going to reach towards our true and most complete potential in all mm. areas of life, it doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't happen mm. by chance or randomly. It happens yeah. because of a lot of deliberate, very intentional practice of the skills that support that. Mm. So, you know, that example of Michael Jordan, you know, you do all these amazing things on the court because he had perfected the basics of a chess pass. Right. Right. And, and without that, he, was, he couldn't do the other stuff. Right. And because he continued to practice those basics. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I guess in the mental health world, that would be, you know, basics like basic breathing techniques, being aware of like, you know, mindfulness techniques of being aware of kind of our mind, body, our thoughts, our feelings, kind of our mm-hmm. our well-being. It's like those are some foundational things that I tend to teach and train people on early on. It's like, hey, these are foundational skills. and. Yep. We have to work on being mindfully aware of. If we want to change, we have to first become aware. Yeah. Um, we have to be present, and that's a for a lot of people. It's a really hard. That's like the that's like a chess pass. But 
sometimes even a little harder at times at first. It's like, it takes a lot of practice. And I think a lot of people give up on the basic fundamentals. You know, I think of coaches, the fundamentals, the fundamentals. And it's so true. It's really about the fundamentals and finding the basics for that particular individual. And now for a short break. So if you're looking for ways to support the show and my YouTube channel, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. There you can make a one-time donation or join the monthly subscription service to support all that I'm doing at the intersection of fatherhood and mental health. And all the proceeds go right back into all the work that I'm doing into production, into continue to grow the show to bring on new guests. So again, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. Thanks. And let's get back to the show. So switch gears. I'm wondering, you know, what is, that's kind of what brought Darren up, you know, his training, being an orthopedic surgeon, experiencing burnout, not being aware of it, but feeling the symptoms of like just being tired, irritable, kind of loss of passion, looking back, realizing, oh, I was burnt out and then starting to help and train others to kind of avoid it. And then now there's a shift. And so you're, you're kind of shifting your focus. We, we actually talked in the green room about this very posh place, our green room. Yes. Virtual green room. A lot of, a lot of fancy things there, but what is, what is the focus now? Kind of, what are you seeing as kind of your, you know, your kind of your, your main focus within this realm? For me, where it hit, where it has kind of evolved to is to really wanting to help people be the best version of themselves in all parts of life, be the best human they can be. And what does that mean if we sort of unpack that? Well, it has to be built on a foundation of health and well-being, because there is no ability to be at your best without that. Mm -hmm. And then it has to be sustainable over time, because we want to do this for the long haul, you know, be a great parent for the long haul, be a great partner, be a great physician, whatever it may be. And so that high performance has to be sustainable. And Mm -hmm. so um, what I, how I think about it is about promoting health, well-being and sustainable high performance through the development of all of the skills and habits that support that. And so it's many of the things that we've talked about as far as awareness or, or, or mindfulness, mindset training, uh, breath work, which is really key to, to so many things, nutrition, hydration, exercise, recovery principles, sleep, and then an understanding really of how our nervous system works, not necessarily, you know, <laughs> cell by cell, but functionally, how does it work? And what are the implications of that? And how can we train our nervous system to be more in line with how we want it to be, in a sense, more in line with our goals, with our passion, with our purpose in life? Mm. And when we can get all of these things sort of lined up and layered on top of each other, now we get to really pursue being at our best in all mm. those phases of life. And so that's that's kind of the paradigm that, that I like to take and think about this from. Mm. Um, you mentioned those uh, seven or so areas. I, I was trying to count and listing at the same time, which is not always easy, but I think it's about seven or eight things you, you, you labeled there. Um, and you know, if you were to take that and bring it down to kind of the Darren practical day to day, like, so when Darren is experiencing, maybe he's stressed out or kind of struggling, what does it look like in your day to day? Like, what do you do practically to kind of do those areas to kind of give context to guys listening, mm-hmm. even women listening, like what is... You know, what does that actually practically look like? And I'm sure there's breath work and mindset, but yeah. kind of break it down like quickly for those of the listening of like, oh, that's, that makes sense. I could do those things. What would that right. look like for Darren? Well, I, I think, and again, everybody's going to be a little bit different with what are the real big keys for, for the things they have to do. And so for me, right. I have a routine of, of things that I try to do every day. Um, and that includes mindfulness meditation 
a bit in the morning and a bit at night. Breath training in the morning. Um, I try to watch my hydration as much as possible. Um, sleep I pay attention to and I have a sleep tracking device that I use to, to sort of assist with that. Um, not that it promotes sleep, but it helps you understand a little bit more about how your sleep is and your recovery is. Right. And I pay attention to recovery and exercising as much as possible. And on top of that, so that's just sort of like the foundation for me. And I fully understand that that foundation is going to be different and specific to each person. Um, and and yeah. that's part of the work that I like to do with people is to help them develop that routine for themselves. But then and on top of that. If we pause there real quick, if we pause there real quick, you mentioned this a few times and, you know, you, you mentioned hydration quite a few times. Well, why have you mentioned hydration? Like if you give like a quick blurb on that, like sentence or two, like, cause you've said it like hydration. Yeah. Why, why is that so important? Well, hydration and nutrition are both so important because they're the building blocks for our cells, all of our cells. And if we don't have adequate hydration and nutrition, then our cells are not going to function at their optimum. Um, and that's in the short term as well as in the long term. And so if we're, if we're talking about promoting health and well-being, well, we need to look after things at that foundational level, which ultimately is our cells and, and hmm. making sure that they have the nutrients that are needed. Um, you know, yeah. we can get off into other concepts, but for instance, if we're underhydrated or undernourished for a given situation, if we're doing a more physical task, we won't be able to do it with full energy and full focus. Hmm. If we're doing a more, you know, thought based task, just the fact of being undernourished or underhydrated can set off our whole sympathetic nervous system and get us into more of a fight or flight mode which is not mm. going to be optimal if we're doing a more thinking task. For example, say we're writing, like your job's a writer and, and you want to be able to write creatively if, if it's fiction, say. Um, I'm just making up examples as we go along here. <laughs> That's but good. That's okay. If, if we don't have adequate nutrition and hydration and we get into a more of a sympathetic nervous system response, that classic fight or flight response, then doing a more thought-based, thinking-based, analytical task is going to be much more difficult because our mm. mind's not in that gear and the right gear for it in essence. Um, yeah. So that's why these things as basic as they are, are so important. Mm. And, you know, again, mm. to borrow from, from professional athletes and high level competitive athletes, they pay a lot of attention to their nutrition and their hydration. And that's mm. because, you know, in addition to the physical aspects of, of being an athlete, there's also, they want their minds sharp. They want to be able to take in the information and rapidly respond so that they can be at their best. And that requires their cells to be, to have the building blocks that they need to, to be able to perform their functions. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. I think, uh, people, again, basics, it's like, sometimes we need to be reeducated on the basics of that. That is the basic mm -hmm. building block. And then if we're not, if we're negating, which is, you know, I love that those, the, the, the array of things that you're hitting for holistic care, because all those things matter, right? We can yep. take care of everything, but if we don't hydrate, well then that's going to affect everything else. It's yeah. like, well, we could take care of hydration and, and physical fitness, but if we're not taking our mental health, well, that affects everything else. It's kind yep. of like, it's like spokes on a wheel. It's like, we need all of them to be functional and not broken yes. because if we have one spoke broken, it might work for a bit, but eventually it's going to collapse and break under yep. the pressure because it's not evenly distributed. So thanks for expanding on that. Um, and it's, I think people forget to drink water all the time at work. I, I know sometimes I do. I'm like, Oh, I, yeah. I, oh, I, I mean, coffee. it happens to everyone. It happens to yeah. all of us. Right. I mean, none, mm -hmm. none of us do this perfectly. Um, yeah. but it's the awareness well, of learning to do it. I need this. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're continuing on. I paused you, but you were going to continue and 
my bad, but I think it was important to kind of hit that spot of hydration, mm-hmm. but you were going to continue kind of more, you said, these are my foundational things I do. And then I think you're going to share something a little more than that. Yeah. So that, that's the foundation, mm-hmm. but we also want to have like resilience built into our system so that when mm-hmm. the unexpected events come up, we can respond to them in a better way. And yeah. I think everybody kind of acknowledges that. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's important to remember is that if we are going to respond to that unexpected event that causes stress, for instance, we're not going to be able to do that optimally if we don't train how to do it. So it gets back to this whole idea of we train so that we're, our bodies are prepared, um, our minds are prepared to take on whatever tasks may come up. So, for instance, you know, a really good method or strategy of dealing with that unexpected stress is breath work, is breathing, because we can help modulate our nervous system with the type of breathing we do. And that's great to know that. It's kind of the first Mm -hmm. step to know and understand that. But unless we practice that, we will never be able to use it in the heat of the moment, at least not Mm -hmm. to its maximum benefit. Um, And so training those things, it's part of the foundation. And it's also part of what allows us to be more adaptive or flexible in, in the face of high demand situations or stressful situations. Yeah. And what would you say to someone who's like, yeah, you know, Darren, I tried it. It doesn't work for me. I know I'm throwing a curveball, but mm-hmm. <laughs> what would you say to a man, surgeon? Yeah, Darren, I tried it. It doesn't work for me. Breath doesn't do anything for me. Well, so I think that comes back to what we were talking about earlier with listening and really hearing what they have to say about what they've tried, why mm-hmm. it doesn't work. Why do they think it doesn't work? Mm-hmm. Because just well, I tried that, it for like a couple of days. I, you know, I did a couple of times and right. So so that would be one scenario completely different from another scenario where say somebody goes, oh, I've done all these different breathwork patterns. I've been doing it for six months and it just doesn't really work. So totally different scenarios. And this is why listening is important. So in the person that's done it for only a couple of a couple of days, say, I think the conversation turns into, well, if you are going to, for instance, want to run a marathon, would you just go and run for two days and then think you're going to show up on race day and run the marathon? Of course not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so you might get into more of a conversation of trying to develop the habit over a longer period of time and then seeing how it works. Yeah. Also, I think it's important to find out when they say it doesn't work. Well, why doesn't it work? Why do you think it doesn't work? Hmm. What are you experiencing that makes you think it's not working? Hmm. Because there's a whole bunch of different things there that, that could be going on. Hmm. Um, and so understanding exactly what their experience is might be very helpful. Yeah. Now, on the other end, you have somebody maybe that's done a lot of it and finds that they're not getting the benefit that they want. And that's where, fortunately, there's a lot of other different strategies besides yeah. breathwork that can be used and implemented as well. Um, right. And so understanding the specifics of the situation, I think, becomes very important. Good job. You you passed. You get A+. Plus. Awesome. Um, <laughs> We're doing well here, Travis. That's good. Yeah, you're doing great. Well, because part of that is, too, is I threw that because it lets where a lot of men will say that, you know, I'll work with and say, yeah, I tried, it didn't work. And it's often because they tried it a few times. Mm-hmm. And and you're right. It has to start with listening of like all that kind of, and I ask that for the listener, like, hey, because I know they're thinking this. Well, I tried that before. I've tried breath work. I've tried this. I've tried that. And in my experience, typically when people say they tried, it's a few, it's a few times, mm-hmm. but nothing nearly long enough of any consistency right. to see the benefit Exactly, because um, they might try it and say, "Oh, it works," but then they try it like a third time. It's like, yeah, nothing happens. Like, yeah, it's often when what I've seen with people is when it doesn't work, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. They tend to be like, uh, "That didn't work for me," right? Um, and so that was. I'm glad you answered that way and yeah. kind of 
why didn't it work? What was going on for you? What was happening? Because you're, you're really kind of diving deeper into the, the, well, what really was going on for you? And I think that's so key to kind of dive deeper. And for those listening, even ask yourself when, if you have been practicing kind of some breath work, some basic breathing skills, like what, you know, when are you practicing, you know, are you only trying to practice in crisis? Are you practicing outside exactly. of crisis, right? Because if, if you're trying yeah. to practice in crisis, but you've never ever practiced, it's probably quite difficult for your brain body to kind of shift. It's like playing a professional basketball game, but you've never, you've never done any practice and expecting to perform and it to work for you. Um, so I love that. And, and even those guys that have probably practiced for six months, I I would find it hard to believe that there's zero benefit. Um, I think there's probably some benefit, but then it goes into, okay, you're some, but we need to, it's not maybe what you wanted it to be. So let's now come in with some other, other things you can do on top of this basic skills, because we do know that certain breathwork things do have a physiological effect on our bodies, on our heart rates, on our, you know, the oxygen to the brain. There are, there are scientific data to show it does have an impact on our, on our, on our our system. to go further with the breathing thing, it's like, and what type of breathing are they doing? Because while it's right. oh, it's there's a lot of different simple, types of breath work. Forward, actually, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. And and if one yeah. is trying to use breathing to kind of settle themselves down, but they're doing the wrong type of breathing, they're only going to kind of right. ramp themselves up. And so that understanding becomes important. And, and unfortunately, like, right. you know, you get into the mindfulness, right? Like it's become so popularized that, that everything yeah. is mindfulness, except that a lot of that stuff is not like the pop culture mindfulness. The same is true with breathing, um, you know, and, and, and while we're on the topic of mindfulness, like another thing that comes up is, is people that'll say, uh, you know, I've been doing mindfulness meditation, but I don't feel any more relaxed and mm. The response is, well, what do you think the mindfulness is supposed to be training? What skill is it training? It's not relaxation. Now, relaxation Mm. may be a byproduct, but it's a byproduct of recognizing all the thoughts that are going on in our mind and not chasing each and every thought and just kind of letting them be there and pass without judging Mm. them and criticizing them. That becomes relaxing. But the primary goal of meditation, and I'd love your thoughts on this as well, but to me, the primary goal of mindfulness is not to relax you. Right. (laughs) No, that's not the, pri- no, I agree with that. I think it's a, I think it's a byproduct. I think it's a, in some cases, what comes after, mm-hmm. um, yeah, exactly the practice. I think, well, what do you, well, what do you think the ultimate goal is? I mean, and again, there's probably, I know there's more than one, but in your mind, what do you think the goal is for you when you're practicing? Um, so if it's a straight mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. type of practice, yeah. um, I think of it as, as training awareness and attention Okay. and, and yeah. doing so in a setting of non-judgment and non-criticism and relaxation certainly can be a byproduct of that but the primary skill that i think we're trying to develop in in mindfulness meditation is awareness essentially yeah yeah and i would agree with that i think it's for sure it's it's building it's building the capacity to become aware of kind of mind body soul kind of the Mm -hmm. whole being like first and foremost is like learning to slow down enough to pay attention to them and like oh this is actually what's happening and yeah, developing the skill set to be able to slow it down versus kind of everything is kind of spinning out of control. So definitely awareness of your kind of all your senses and your whole being, um, and then learning how to choose how to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's what I would say when I'm teaching people is like because often we can get stuck in the kind of reactive state to these things that we're just reacting or kind of on autopilot to these things, and people just don't even challenge with. I mean, these thoughts, people, it's like every thought a feeling is just true, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's just facts. Right. And so often when I'm working with them is, well, hold on a second. Let's first, what are these thoughts? Let's break it down. And then it comes from the skill of observing and 
I'm thinking like DBT skills, you know, the, the what and the how skills of, you know, which is teaching the skill of how to be, how to practice mindfulness, right? You know, the, I'm not sure if you're familiar with DBT, but, um, dialectical behavioral therapy, but the what and the how skills, like the, like the how skills, are we not where, you know, it's non-judgmental stance, you know, being one mindfully and effective, like, so everything you're doing is trying to be focused on the one thing you're doing. That's what one mindfully is. And effectively is you're trying to be as effective as you can with whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then those, those kind of those how skills, um, or the what skills, sorry, as you want to observe and describe. So first, what I like to do with people is teach them and say, what First, observe your thoughts, observe your feelings, observe your body sensations, observe your senses, and then begin to describe them as such. Oh, I'm right. having a thought. I'm having a feeling, having a body sensation, you know, dot, 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 versus this constant truth of everything I'm feeling and thinking. And that's just kind of running my life. It's like, no, this is, it's just a thought. It's yep. just a feeling. It's exactly. just a body sensation. Now, there might be facts tied to those things, but in order to, I think, healthily and clearly differentiate fact from just a thought or fact from just a feeling we first have to like okay what is it mm -hmm. and then once i observe it now i can do something with it right now i could actually respond to it and i think that's the hardest part is teaching them and that which comes with a lot that's like the chess passes like you got to practice that one a lot yep. like over and over and over and over and over again where that becomes automatic of like yep i'm very i can't observe and describe my thoughts i could be non-judgmental because often we like to cause judgment too of like oh i shouldn't feel this way this is a bad thought i shouldn't have this and you know these are things that I would say again, comes back to awareness and being the, having the capacity to choose to re live in a responsive state, um, which just comes from practice. And and I tell people, and I'm sure you do too, is like you don't ever stop practicing. Yes, exactly, exactly. Like, because people ask, like, well, when I'm like, well, the reality is you don't ever stop. Just become this becomes like drinking water for you. Just yeah, this becomes like your normal. So it's you don't ever stop doing this. It's a this becomes just kind of how you do. Exactly. Um, exactly. I mean, it's back to the physical exercise example. Yeah. You know, if mm. you could be super fit, but if you stop exercising, you lose your strength, you lose your endurance. Right. And this is right. the same thing. It's a skill like anything else. And mm -hmm. any skill that we don't continue to practice and develop and use, mm. we'll, we'll lose our proficiency in. Yeah. Just how it is. Well, Darren, one final question. And it, I mean, it's right at the hour marker and it's been it's been a great conversation and yeah. I can't wait. I, I can't believe we're, we're in an hour. Pen. I know it's great. It's, well, it's fun. It's fun. We have a fun conversation. It goes quick. Yeah. Um, we're going to have a second conversation soon. People, uh, on the polyvagal theory to, to TBD. Um, I'm actually, Darren's much more wise and trained in this. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually about to take a training here to, so I could, <laughs> I could have a more educated conversation on it, um, with Darren. Um, but from what I do know, it's such a, it's a very helpful understanding based in science, based on, well, our body, our nervous system. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of benefit, um, at least in my profession within mental health and mental wellness, there's benefit. And I think what Darren's doing and kind of performance and athletes and everything, I mean, really, this is part of our foundational building block of who we are. Um, so I'm excited to do that. We're going to have, we're going to have a conversation on that maybe in the next couple of weeks. And depending on when I finish my training, I'll, I'll keep you posted. But what is one as a final question as a father we're bringing the whole dad thing in what is one skill that you are kind of actively working on helping teach your ch children currently oh, great question i don't know how effectively i'm teaching it <laughs> that's okay it's, <laughs> but that's, it, what pra that's why we practice because practice yeah, there's a exactly, lot of errors and mistakes exactly, and that's exactly. part of practice <laughs> yes exactly thank you um so maybe 
I'll reframe it a bit. The, the skill that I most want for them to have, for mm-hmm. my kids to have, which hopefully I can help teach and at times perhaps more effectively than others, is awareness. Mm-hmm. And it's awareness not just of what's going on outside in the external environment, but awareness of the internal environment and to have mm-hmm. that awareness without judgment and without criticism, which is mm-hmm. mindfulness, basically. Um, yeah. Mindfulness, I mean, th- that skill can be developed without sitting and formally meditating, of course. It can be developed in so many different ways just by being aware of our surroundings, aware of how we're feeling, the sensations in our body, the thoughts in our mind, our feelings, emotions, and so forth. But I think that so much really stems out from that awareness that's Hmm. I've heard some people call it situational awareness. Like you might think of for like a soldier or a first responder or something like that, but it's situational awareness for our internal and our external environments, because I think pretty much all of the skills that we would want to develop really rest on a foundation of having that ability to be able to be aware. Hmm. There's one thing and that's not just for my kids. That's for all of us out there. There's one skill to develop and to continue yeah. to develop over time. I think it would be awareness. I, I second that. Um, and I also second as a dad that without judgment, because sometimes we had a judge, we aren't doing good as fathers to teach this, but it's that practice of, okay, we just get back up and try again and mm-hmm. we practice with our kids again. We practice with ourselves. Yeah. And that's part of, part of life is that Michael Jordan dropped a lot of passes. He missed a lot of shots that's part of practice, yep. but you get back up and try it again and, you know, take care of yourself and all those things, everything we got to do and, and teach us to our kids. And man, I, I hope, I want my kids to be aware too. I really do. I want them to be aware and I really try to be proactive with them and definitely not always effectively as well. So, um, even as a trained therapist, <laughs> Oh, I make mistakes. Um, which is part of being human. We all do, but that's part yep. of the the reality of the world we live in is that we get back up and we get to teach our kids it's okay to make mistakes when we're not perfect. Yeah. We, we practice. So, um, Darren, I thank you. It's been just awesome conversation. Um, yeah. Thank you, Travis. So thanks. It's been great. Yeah, I can't wait for part two. Uh, TBD, a couple weeks, maybe a month, who knows. But I'll have you on again and we'll dive into the polyvagal stuff and see what kind of crazy fun that is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you have a good rest of your night and uh, we'll talk soon. You as well, Travis. Thanks so much for for inviting me on your podcast. It's been great. Thanks for joining and listening today. Please leave a comment and review the show. Dads are tough, but not tough enough to do this fatherhood thing alone.